Welcome to episode 181 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I spent half my life living without a dishwasher. I had one growing up and definitely did not appreciate it enough. In my early 20s, I got my own place and it didn't have a dishwasher. That continued to be the case in the dozen or so places I've lived since then. A couple of years ago, with the birth of my second child fast approaching, my wife and I decided it was time to get one. It was a life changer. There are all the obvious ways it improved our lives. It saves the planet by using less water. It saves time, of course, which in my case meant no more spending hours, and I do mean hours, every two days washing bottle parts. But but then, there was the less obvious way having a dishwasher improves relationship. You can avoid the whose dishes are in the sink conversation. I've had that conversation many, many times with roommates and office mates, and no one claims responsibility. That's because a dirty spoon here and a dirty mug there, plus a couple of plates from lunch, add up quickly to a full sink of dirty dishes that no one thinks is their responsibility. What if there was a more productive way to have that angsty conversation? I notice the sink is full of dishes again. I feel frustrated and annoyed because I need to have a clean kitchen to cook in. Would you be willing to clean up after you've cooked in the kitchen? That is an example of using nonviolent communication, also known as NVC. There are four steps to an NVC conversation. Observe, feel, need, request. Your challenge this week. Think about a small D difficult conversation you've been putting off. Something like dirty dishes in the sink. Write out how you'd have a conversation using the NVC model. One, observe. Begin with a neutral observation. Two, feel. Describe emotions, not positions. Talk feelings, not issues. Three, need. Identify what you need. Four, request. Would you be willing to take a deep breath and initiate the conversation? Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest helps companies solve their thorniest problems while also strengthening their top and bottom lines. She's a management consultant, executive coach, and facilitator who helps leaders move their companies and careers forward. With over 30 years of experience, her specialty is developing high performing leaders and workforces. Her clients have included family run businesses national nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. She's a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes, and her TEDx talk, Why There's So Much Conflict at Work and What You Can Do to Fix It, has been viewed over 135,000 times. Please join me in welcoming Liz Kislik. Hi, Robbie. Hey, Liz. And I should also mention that your TEDx talk was then elevated to TED.com, which is super exciting. Can't let a moment go by without mentioning that. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us in your office in my hometown area of Long Island, New York. 
a pleasure to be on this call with you. And as you know, this is a, a podcast about uh, building strong networks and how leaders in particular are, are able to sort of create the, the community around them to help them succeed. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I think about leadership as a kind of helping people see what is meaningful and necessary to be able to move forward. And also the ability to get everybody ready to do it once it's clear. But the other thing is that the leader has to take responsibility for what's happening. And that could be good and it could be bad, but it's on the leader. So, so that's the big chunk. What is out there? What do we need to address? Are we ready to go to it? And the leader has to take the hits if something doesn't work or figure out how to do it better. So I, I hear clarity, motivation, and responsible for the results, whatever they may be. That's, yeah, that's really good. I'm going to add something else. Thank you. That was so good. Um, it helps a lot. I don't know if this is absolutely necessary to leadership, but it helps a whole lot if the leader is actually curious about what's going on or open-minded. The two things together, really, but that's how you see what's happening and how you figure out how to retool if something's not what you want it to be. Yes, because it is true that sometimes people have such a strong will towards what they think the outcome should be. They're missing the obvious signs that things aren't going quite right, and they're not listening or open to hearing from other people that could tell them that. And there's so many history examples of that happening. Yes, that's exactly right. And to your point, in those kinds of circumstances, sometimes the leader doesn't even notice that the followers aren't coming. Mm. Right. They're just charging ahead with no exactly. sense, no like sense of, of, yes, that's so interesting. And of course, you can't really be a good leader if there's no followers. <laughs> that's just, you're like that lone person dancing on the beach until the other people join you. That's um, right. <laughs> that's so, right. No, that's leader in name only yeah. or in your own mind. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious when you started to get a sense that you had some ability towards what we're now describing as leadership. I think for many years, I didn't actually think of it as leadership. I thought of it as making things work, getting things done, sometimes even taking charge to make things work and get them done that kind of thing. I think a lot of that is because I'm the eldest of three. And so sometimes it was my job to be helpful to my mother and make sure things were moving along. I'm not sure my siblings always liked it so much. Um, but I think looking back when I first realized that this was something I could do was probably in high school. I was active in a variety of different extracurricular activities. I was the editor of both the high school literary magazine and the uh, yearbook. And both of those activities, the yearbook in particular, required 
being really clear, to your point, clarity, figuring out what was actually needed to have all these volunteers do their jobs, and also how to galvanize people into caring about what we were doing. Because not only was I responsible for making sure the book came out, I actually was responsible for sales, which I had not contemplated when I first agreed to do it. And, and so the clarity, but also the ability to get people motivated. I don't really feel you can motivate people. They have to motivate themselves, but you have to give them something to be a little excited about so that they're willing to come along with you for the ride. So you took us all the way back to high school, but I'm curious, how did you even get selected or offered or think to take on that role? Were you already, even earlier than that, the kind of person who often stepped up front and maybe all your years of having those siblings to take care of? But, you know, I don't see you as being the quiet, sit in the back of the room type. You're, you're, you have an idea, you're talking about it. People are listening. It's true that if I have an idea, I'm talking about it. That is really true. <laughs> um, I guess I also was always involved. So I was the co-editor of my junior high yearbook, for example. I was the stage manager of the junior high show when I was in ninth grade. And I was probably, I was a take charge type, I think from quite young. Early on, luckily people know not to do this now. I kind of was labeled bossy, if that's um, an acceptable term to use. So I didn't think of it as leadership, but to your point exactly, I saw at least what I thought needed to happen, which then made it my job to be sure that it was happening. And most often that involved other people. Gosh, you're so speaking my language. I'm sitting here thinking, how do people not see what needs to happen, A, and B, how do people, even worse, see it and then not take ownership <laughs> about making something happen? Like. I, it took me a while to understand that there were that the world was filled with a lot of people who were like us, because without us, the world doesn't operate. Like there are people stepping up and inviting others to join them all the time, but you don't always get valued for it. So it sounds like early on that bossy label is sort of about you know you're you're kind of a little out of line, little girl kind of thing, but you grew into the role. I mean, you, you clearly got to the point where people deeply appreciated that 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 which you brought um, to a moment. When did you start thinking that you could apply this into a career setting? Oh, that's good. So in college, my senior year, all my friends were applying to grad school. I loved college, really loved it. It was so unbelievably interesting. There were so many interesting people. And one of the things that's fabulous about class is even as an introvert, you can want to participate because you're learning. And so the questioning and the discussion is very valuable, even though you wouldn't necessarily want to stand in front of the class and tell everybody what's what. So I loved it, but I wanted to be where things were happening as opposed to studying more. I do like a certain amount of action 
And I also think I probably like feeling I've contributed to its happening. I don't have to be out in front of it, but I like to know that I'm a part of making things happen. So I went for a series of interviews um, and ended up taking a job with a company, a marketing agency that I had worked for summers in college because they already knew me. So they were willing to pay me a lot more and bring me in at a higher level than companies for whom I was just a kid coming out of college. And I was supposed to be an, ex- uh, an account executive for my first job there. But when I got there, it turned out that the woman who was the manager of the department called statistical and tabulation was out on maternity leave. And so I became the acting manager. Uh, I was responsible for two dozen clerks, women, all older than I was, of course, all experienced in their jobs. And I knew about them. I'd been in the company, but I had not worked in that department. And that was my first true trial by fire kind of experience because I really had to figure it out. That's a wild story, Liz. Like that is an unexpected and wild story. I mean, um, you know, in some ways they knew they had a, a, a position that needed a warm body. They didn't know what they were asking. And you didn't know what you were saying yes to. Um, but the only way to learn is to do. I mean, that is, you know, you could read about it and read about it, but it's like, here was your chance to apply a theory into praxis, right? So how, but the generational difference must have been a bit of a challenge because they're really good at their job, but they don't understand management. And so they probably think it's super easy and you don't really understand what your role is or their role <laughs> So how did you how did you like find your way through to the point where you felt good about it? Did you feel good about it? I did feel good about it after a while, mm. not in the beginning. I was terrified. And part of why I was terrified was because the leadership of the company, to your point that they didn't know what they were asking, they also didn't know how to do this. They brought me in as if I was going to be in training to be a clerk. I was supposed to learn the job from an experienced person and then all of a sudden take over, which really, that's a horrifying thing. And luckily, I didn't know how terrible it was. I was a good doobie, and this is how I was assigned. And so, of course, I learned the job and learned it quickly and asked a bunch of questions, but not too many because you didn't want to be threatening to anybody. So, you know, that was like a week or something. And then all of a sudden I was temporarily the boss. The real issue was that I was so unbelievably different from the woman who was their manager, who was a screamer, an impetuous, hot-headed, loving and loyal, but wild person. And the department ran with her screaming at them and them screaming back and all kinds of crazy emotionalism. There were no voices raised in my household when I was growing up. It was not permit. You know, that was bad behavior. You didn't do that. We didn't even have arguments. We had discussions. 
So the idea of being screamed at, you know, by this whole bunch of women, that was really bad news. So I didn't know what to do. And in situations like that, you just follow your instinct. You don't have a lot of choice if you don't have training or don't have somebody to turn to. So early on, you know, probably two weeks in, I don't know, we had our first meeting, capital M meeting, and they all start screaming. And I was just very quiet. And in fact, I got quieter. And after several minutes of this, I said, quietly, you know, I can't hear you when you're screaming at me. And this actually scared them because they weren't used to it. They didn't know what to make of it. They, so they all quieted immediately. And, and then I said what was natural to me, which is, I really want to hear whatever it is you want me to know about. And if there are problems, I really want to know about it. But I need to hear them one at a time so I can actually understand what you're telling me. And we just moved to a different plane. I was so lucky, really. Unbelievable. I, it is a, it's an unbelievable story. And thank you for sharing it. it I, I think that we've all had trials in our careers, um, but I'm going to remember this story, I think, for quite a while. Um, my, I was just referring to my trial, which was that I stepped up as a grad student of my master's in social work to be the statewide coordinator for a national campaign. And it was a year-long campaign, at the, and it was hard to do, and we ex- exceeded our goals and all of that. And the very, very end of this year-long campaign, my supervisor said to me, who was the deputy director of the organization, he said, I would never have taken on that role. <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, oh, thanks, thanks. Oh, my gosh, the politics, nothing ever can change. People do as they do. Things aren't possible. He had all the things that he thought was, and I just was sort of naive and eager and earnest and had spent a year getting around all the negative talk and moving people forward. And he he sort of didn't have it in him to even have tried. And uh, I do think there are some things that a lack of knowledge can help you start doing amazing things that are not, no one thinks is possible. I think, though, it's also what you said. The naivete, yes, but the eagerness and the earnestness, people read that. They know if you really want it to work versus are pretending to want it to work. And being open to them and actually having a care for them as humans People can read that. And so unless they are really carrying a tremendous load of resentment, sometimes they can't get out of their own way if the load is too big. But most people want to work well with someone who wants to work well with them. Mm-hmm. And so we were both lucky. Yeah. Because I think we're both that way. Yeah. No, this is a really good observation. I think spelling these things out so people listening in could take note and, and hopefully find ways to apply it in the work that they're doing. I, I want to understand kind of where you went next. Like, so that was a temporary role. W- were you in a career for a while before you developed your own business? I was at that firm for about eight years. 
And every six months, I was promoted into a new job that I had already started doing because it was a relatively, it was a small family run firm. There was plenty of stuff that was going undone that could be improved. And so, you know, given everything else I've said, it makes complete sense that I would have just started picking stuff up and doing it and and trying to fix things. And so they'd figure out that I was doing that and then promote me into the next job, which was great, sometimes scary. There was one job that I was promoted into with the express purpose, although, of course, I didn't know this, of firing someone that no one had been willing to fire, but who really needed to be fired. In fact, she did need to be fired. I had never fired anybody. I didn't know how you fire someone. Well, I, I want to hold off on that just for a minute. I think that you figured it out. And yeah. also, sometimes, again, the not knowing, you know, you see it as a learning opportunity and you don't have as much ego. I think what's hard is that once you feel like you know something, there's a lot more ego attached to getting it right. And if you're still in a learning mindset, and if you stay in a learning mindset, then there's not as much ego. And you're willing to try things out. And I, and I, can, I can see how early in our careers, we have the benefit of that, but we don't know how to use it to our own advantage. And then later in our careers, we get stuck in our ways and it's hard to stay open to learning. And that people who do keep growing and keep doing amazing things. Um, and I do put you in that category. And I, I'm curious, at what point did you think, I don't want a steady paycheck and health insurance <laughs> and to clock in and out to a regular job and realize that you could just do this? You could do this. That's a, that's a very different mindset to have than I can do this for other people. That's really well framed. So I was progressing in this company and then the owner died. And there was no succession plan. And by that point, I was 30 years old. I was pregnant and I was the executive vice president. And the widow of the owner had made me the EVP partially because there were other people in senior staff who thought they would force her out. And that was not what was going to happen for sure. And she brought in someone to be president and an investor, et cetera. And that group started taking the company in a direction that I felt was not good. And I didn't want to be associated with it. So I left. And because I was already, oh, Robbie, this is perfect for all your points about networking. I didn't even think about it. I was already well-connected in the industry. And so other consultants were subcontracting to me within the first week after I left. And I just never stopped working, you know? It, it has varied, and I've changed the nature of the work multiple times. But first of all, I had work I knew how to do and I was happy to do with people I knew. Cool. Great. But second of all, I come from a family that had a lot of entrepreneurship in it. I actually wasn't afraid of that. It, it didn't even 
again, it's the naivete. It, I should have been more afraid. Didn't even strike me. It seemed much safer and healthier, honestly, than doing the other things that would have been normal, like going to look for a job. Partially because at that time, wasn't so great to go look for a job when you were visibly pregnant in the first place, but also what would have been the jobs that I would have been truly qualified for. I could have gone into another agency, but I already knew agency life was nuts. I didn't necessarily want to replicate that. I could have been a vice president or senior vice president or something of customer service in a very large company. But I had clients who worked in very large companies, and I knew I didn't want that. Going out on my own was actually the easiest and the smoothest path, and and that was clear right away. Well, and I love that you had this aha moment that as you left, you were not actually, quote, on your own, that you had this network around you. You had built up connections and relationships within this industry to the point where people were, were excited to hear that you were suddenly available to help them with projects they already lined up. Like that's the, the nature just sort of, of this sort of flowed easily and simply. What were you doing to establish those, not just establish, but I, that, that part's not super hard. How were you nurturing and sustaining those kinds of connections in those eight years when you didn't think you were looking for a job? Because I think a lot of people, they might make connections, they don't nurture them, and then Eight years later, they show up on LinkedIn saying, will you look at my resume? <laughs> Do you know anyone? And you, it sounds like you had, had stayed in touch in some way. Like, how were you doing that? I can't say, honestly, that I was nurturing the relationships. But I was very active in our trade association. And so I would see these people at events. It was normal to see them several times a year. And... Uh, They all knew me from my work at this agency. And so they knew, in a sense, that I was a reliable quantity. Um, But being active at the trade association, which is not because in any way I was thinking about networking, I was just doing what I naturally do, which is trying to make stuff work better. So... I was on committees and I did all kinds of volunteer work. So I was in touch with people all the time, but never asking for anything on my own behalf. Right. But that visibility and that contribution and paying it forward, you know, I have this, I have this philosophy of abundance that I talk about a lot. And my mother once asked me for an example because she thought that I was giving away my time too much. This is back when I would meet people in a coffee shop with my Blackberry, my brain. So this is going back a little while. And she would say, good Jewish mother, why aren't you getting paid? Get paid. And I said, it's like giving rides to the airport. If you become known as the kind of person who gives rides to the airport, not only will you get a ride, but it'll be from someone that you've probably never driven, but they just see you as the kind of person who's always giving other people rides to the airport. So you had developed this like, you know, sort of reputation within your industry as being helpful, resourceful, willing, a follow, someone who follows through in their commitments, steps up. So, and you were also good at your job. Like your, your reputation at your actual work was also coming through. And it's so funny that that doesn't feel like networking. 
<laughs> um, because I think we think of networking. I mean, the way it gets sort of spelled out to most people is you show up somewhere and you spray a bunch of cards around the room. But what you were doing were establishing relationships. And that's how you had this smooth... I mean, this is probably the smoothest transition I've heard of for anyone leaving a, a sort of corporate world, a career yeah. to go into entrepreneurship. Unbelievably lucky. Well, okay. Well, then what was the challenge then? If it wasn't lining up those initial clients, you were about to have a baby. <laughs> so there was that. Um, you know, there's still a difference between knowing how to do the work and running a business. Was there, was there any learning curve around that? And how did you ever bring a team in, people to help you? Like, how did that get started? Um, pretty early on, I did hire an assistant. This was long enough ago that it was normal for an executive type to have an assistant. And so that was always just part of my budgeting. I mean, I don't have one now, but that's a very recent thing. All these years, I've had one. And so you could call that team, but the challenge, but okay, so you can have the challenge of the first guy who committed to a $10,000 deal, but didn't really mean it. And who then consented to pay me for $1,000. I hadn't done $10,000 worth of work yet, but I thought there was more to the deal and he had overpromised. That was one kind of challenge. Uh, another kind of challenge was that the first assistant I hired, I ran an ad, I hired this woman, turned out to be terrible. And I had to fire her. And the the reason I had to fire her was because after, you know, like a month and a half together, it wasn't very long. I yelled at her one day and you already know, I don't do that. I don't believe in that. And so that night I had to speak to myself very seriously. You know, why was I yelling and how was I going to make sure I wasn't going to yell again and those kinds of things. And the next day she came in and I said, I was so sorry, I was going to have to let her go. She was shocked. Why? I said, because I yelled at you yesterday. And I don't think we can have the kind of relationship that's actually going to work. I don't think my expectations and what you're doing, you know, it's not a fit. She was so used to being yelled at. She thought I was crazy. But you have to was, know, right. It, for it you. Was right. Yeah. It was totally right. I think being in charge of hiring your own people is actually one of the one of the most complex but underappreciated aspects of being your own business like it's it's a thing you know it's true when you're in a in a career it's the it's a job but you have a lot you, you still don't always do it right but there's a lot of people around you trying to get get their own like two cents into how it gets done and there's a committee and it, everything goes really slow and it's like this huge thing that's on the side of your real job. But when you're really by yourself trying to figure it out, you suddenly go, wow, as annoying as that process was, I at least felt I had more resources to figure this out. I'm, how long ago was this shift that you started your own business? Like, How many years have you been doing this? It was 31 years in December. That's brilliant. That's so brilliant. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, Liz, you and I know each other through Dory Clark's Recognize Expert course and online community. And you are now seeing all of us who've shown up in the last decade 
you know, uh, I've met so many people who started in 2008, <laughs> 2009, right? Like right. whenever the last, you know, economic crisis or 93 was another popular moment. Right. Um, so whenever, you know, somewhere in the early 90s, somewhere uh, around 2008, 2009, people suddenly are out of work and become an entrepreneur. Um, and you must think, like my watching us, right? It must be so interesting to see us all go through this first five years of trying to figure out our business, what it looks like. But so much has changed. Like, how have you evolved technology wise? Like, you said you got rid of an assistant. There's probably a zillion things you no longer need an assistant for because things can be automated, you know, digitally done. Right. You know, you're no longer stuffing envelopes. I mean, like, right. My billing. And paying bills, just for example, takes me less time now than when I was giving instructions about it and had to check it, (laughs) which is fantastic. Yes. You know, because also I'm not paying for an assistant and I'm not paying the assistant's health insurance, which I was doing and, you know, all those things. So. I am traveling lighter, which is really lovely. The va- the value to having an assistant, though, if it is the right person for me, is somebody to toss ideas around with and somebody who's right here. <laughs> you know, I would holler, not loudly, but I mean, raise my voice a little to speak from my room into the next room. What do you think about X or which word is better or any of those, you know, daily questions? And so to your point before about how challenging it is to be an employer in such a tiny business, when it's good, it's fantastic because you are in sync and you have to be personal in certain ways you wouldn't necessarily in a larger company. And when it's not, it's not. Now I do have a VA who posts all my social media stuff because I have neither the time nor the patience for that. But I don't see her. We correspond by email. It doesn't feel the same as having somebody here. So there are ways in which I would say it's lonelier than it used to be. Are you part of any kind of peer groups? Are you in a masterminds? Like anything that meets regularly? Uh, No, I'm in our community, the recognized expert community. And I'm certainly in touch with a bunch of people from that with some frequency. And I am still active in some ways in the industry that I am now only peripherally related to. I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Marketing Edge. And so I do see people there with some regularity. Yeah, yeah, because that's part of the combating the loneliness. It doesn't have the same um, answer uh, to the calling over to the other room (laughs) to test out a a word. Um, My wife started working from home uh, about uh, almost a year ago. And uh, we now share an office with desks that face each other. But my computer monitor is so big that the only way for me to actually see her is to like tilt my head all the way around it. Um, now, she's in the sort of tech world, ed tech, and mm-hmm. they put a duck on their desk when they're coding. And they talk to their duck when they're trying to solve a, a coding problem. So she gave me a duck to put on my desk. Well, once a week, I write an email for my, my weekly email. 
and I write a little story. So I always say, hey, can you be my duck? <laughs> and then I say it all out loud. And she goes, oh, yeah, that was good. You know, it's not generally feedback, but it's sort of like, I just need to hear it. And I need to see, hear the response to it. Right. You need an affirmation. I need an affirmation. And it's so handy <laughs> to not just be like, is this good? I don't know. I'm in my own head. Right. But it, it is interesting. Um, try the duck. It could work for you, Liz. I'm just, you know. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 don't. I could not work at home with my husband. He would talk to me too much, I think. I don't think I could do that. One of the things about being in a large office building, though, is you see the people on your floor. You So I can't do the kind of casual work questions, but you do get that social chit-chat, mm. the water cooler kind of talk, even though it's in the elevator yeah. instead of in the office. So uh, as we're moving to the end of this, I, I'm curious if you do have any habits, practices, or philosophies around nurturing and sustaining not just your inner circle of connections, but that sort of second and third layer out. Because clearly you're good at staying in touch with people. That's why you're still on the board of uh, only, you know, somewhat related industry. How, how are you doing that? Is it, I mean, social media is a little bit of that, but like, is it hosting things? Do you write letters? Like, what is your, what is your plan or practice or, or goals around that? I think we have to call it practice more than any of the others because it's not formal enough to be goals or philosophy or whatever. For many years, starting on paper, I've had a monthly newsletter. And the people who actually know me, as opposed to the people who've signed on since, they read it. So that's just a nice thing. You know, and, and I tell little stories in my opening message, and then I have more serious, here's an issue, here's something you should know kind of stuff. So that's, that is the one most structured way. The other way is I'm a very good foul weather friend. So when somebody is ill or has a problem in their family or whatever, I check in on them. And, and that's because I want to know if they're okay or is there something I can be helpful with, that kind of thing. And what I have learned is that that sticks with people for a long time. For people who are doing great and everything's wonderful, I probably don't stay in touch enough, you know, <laughs> because, because I don't feel like they need it. And when I see them, I see them or whatever. I love this distinction. Because I think you're right that it's six of people that um, you don't have to invest as much time if you invest at the right time. You know, if, if, the, if the people in need, you know, you show up and help them in that way. I mean, that's memorable in a way that you sending like random notes would right. be less memorable. Um, that's right. The, yeah. only the only caution, if I may, for your listeners, is you can't do that casually. Mm. You have to be willing to actually make yourself available if they want to talk to you, if they want to talk to you, you know, late at night, if you have to put yourself there. You can't do it in the more automated way that you might just reach out to everybody four times a year. Right. 
So there might be a shorter list of people that you would do that with. And that's, you know, I, I have a friend from, from junior high that we have that kind of like in and, in and out of each other's lives, you know, and you don't need to talk all the time to know that right. we're there for each other. That's right. Um, and I, in fact, I've always talked to my clients that like rekindling old connections is so much easier than trying to find new trusted ones, right? Like when you have a history, it's yeah. just easier to pick up. Yeah, a history is really a meaningful thing. On the other hand, you never know who you're going to meet. Mm-hmm. You know, and I travel a lot for work. And I got a client on Amtrak. Not at all what I ever would have expected. But this guy was sitting next to me and seemed kind of stressed and so I chatted him up and yeah, one thing it, led to another. <laughs> one thing led to another. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Liz, uh, this is sort of our, my wrap up question is uh, if we were meeting a year from now and I know we're going to stay in touch, so that's wonderful. But we were connecting a year from now and we were celebrating all of your successes from the previous year. What would we be celebrating? What, what are you going to actualize in the next year? I am working on a book proposal now. It is very hard for me, but I would like that to be the thing. You know, say a little more about that. Um. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> because this, that makes it real. <laughs> oh yeah, it, it's hard because doing a book is a lot of sitting alone, and what I like about what I think of as my real work so much is I'm doing it with the people who need it. So in the same way that your wife has the duck, I try to think of actual clients while I'm writing things that are not for real people, but it doesn't feel the same to me. Yeah. And a book has to be generalized. And I like to put my finger on the spot and say, this is the thing. And the other person says, oh yeah, that's the thing. And then we, you know, are joyful together, even if we're upset together, because we know what to do. Um, So it is hard for me. And I'm in the middle right now of changing what I thought the book was going to be. And I'm starting to approach something else. So I can't actually say more about what it is because I don't know yet. Well, I I really appreciated that you shared a little bit more about your process. I similarly... um, I love the marketing of the book more than I would ever love the writing of it. <laughs> um, and most people, it's the opposite. So I can't wait to celebrate this with you, though. I, re- I mean, I see it coming to fruition. I see us celebrating. Thank you so much, Liz. That. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. Really happy to be with you, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Liz. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 181. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. I also want to wish a happy Valentine's Day to everyone. Whether you're partnered or not, practicing nonviolent communication is a great way to nurture close relationships. If you want to learn more about NVC, 
I suggest reading Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life, Life-Changing Tools for Healthy Relationships, which is a book written by Marshall Rosenberg, PhD. You know, for ease of reference, I have put that book at robbysamuels.com forward slash NVC. That's robbysamuels.com forward slash NVC. That's for nonviolent communication. If you enjoyed this episode with Liz, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another town professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.